Today and next week, we talk about heaven. That's what it's going to be like, folks. I've told you time and time again, heaven is a lot more like a football stadium than a library. Okay? So, oh, and by the way, I was talking with God this week. And if there are points during this message when you want to do what that little sound effect did, he said it's okay. And I say it's okay. So, we're here to, uh, to enjoy this. Because this, we're going to talk about the party to end all parties, okay? And by the way, the party to end all parties is a never-ending party. It's going to go on forever. And it's been in the works. It's been in the plan for a long, long time. Before we read the scripture together and uh, begin taking a look at what's in store for us, um, just there's a couple overarching tie together points that uh, I want to make. One of those places where if you want to do some studying on your own, you can do that. We're not going to take the time. But there are some parallels and fulfillments of what we're going to talk about this week and next week found in those places in Isaiah chapter 54, 60, and 65, in Ezekiel 40, chapters 40 through 48, and in Genesis 1 through 3. I've been telling you all along that this book ties together from cover to cover, okay? And I think that's a little proof of it. Another side point, um, many of the promises made to over overcomers in those seven letters to the seven churches that we started with in the first couple chapters, chapters two and three, we will see the fulfillment of those promises as we look through these next two chapters. So as we begin this morning, uh, Jody Handron is going to read chapter 21 of the revelation for us. So as Jody comes forward, if you all would stand, please, as we uh, honor together the reading of God's word. Jody, thanks again for helping us today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as is of a stone of crystal clear jasper. 
It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city was laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width, and he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb were its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Jody, very much. I'm so glad you had to read all those costly stones and not me. Wow. What an amazing imagery, folks. What a vivid description God gives us there to describe this awesome new home that is going to be ours. You know, in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, it's not a PowerPoint slide, but it talks about Abraham, the father of our faith. And it talks about Abraham being on a journey looking for a city, a city whose builder and whose architect was God. Wouldn't you love to be the one that got to go... Attention, Abraham, your city is here. This is what he's been, this is what he was looking for his whole life. And here it is, folks, and we get to be a part of it. So let's take a a tour of our new digs together, okay? You want to do that? Sure, we do. All right. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The first thing that stands out that we need to understand is it's new, but it's a different kind of new, okay? Next slide. In the Greek language, it's not the word neos, which means new in time, like it's brand new. It's the word kine, which means it's new in quality, it's, it's fresh. It's superior to the old. In other words, it's like our, our glorified bodies that we're going to have, okay? It's, it's renovated. It's an upgrade. It's back to the original plan that God had for something. A key to you and I understanding the heart of God, the plan of God, the big picture plan of God is in verse number five that we just had Jody read. He who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making 
all things new. Please notice it does not say I'm making all new things. Do you get that? That's a really important distinction because God is not making all things, all new things. He's making all things new. It is not a picture that says, ah, I'm just throwing it all away and starting all over from scratch. No, it is a remake of what existed before sin came and left its ugly mark, its ugly stain on God's personal and beautiful creation. Folks, that's a big deal. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Personally, I believe that this this statement that Jesus makes about making all things new, I think it's an ongoing newness. I think it's going to be a continuous, ongoing, regenerative power that God possesses that is going to cause all things to be made new in a way that they will never be static. It will never get old, and it's almost almost like they will never be finished. That song we sang this morning, I Stay Amazed, I think that's part of why. We're just going to watch this thing unfold before us in a constant sense of newness. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? We will be amazed. Every time we turn around, we're going to see something new, something that surprises us, something that amazes us. (gasps) This is more than I ever imagined it could be. And we won't say that just once. I think we'll say that over and over and over again. Heaven will be filled with new surprises, new and more experiences in our ongoing life, more continual ongoing learning, etc., 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 Put verse 1 back up. Then I saw new heaven, new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. This isn't talking about about heaven, our, our new home passing away. It's talking about the atmospheric heaven, okay? And when it talks about it passing away, it's not talking about it disappearing. It means it's going to be wiped clean. It's going to be purged of all the impact and all the nasty effects that sin has had upon the atmospheric heaven and upon this planet Earth. It's what Peter referred to in 2 Peter chapter 3, where these words are written, starting in verse number 7. But by his word, the present heavens, atmospheric heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and with and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. For we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. At this day of the Lord, the the second coming of Christ, again, the heavens and the earth aren't going to be obliterated, destroyed. They're going to be purged like with a refiner's fire. And all the dross and all the the junk is going to be purged and burned away. Now, this is only my speculation, okay? I don't have anywhere that I can prove this. But I think that this is going to happen when we are raptured off this earth. We meet the Lord in the clouds and sometime in this process, don't have any idea how long it's going to take. But I think sometime in that process, we're going to have a bird's eye view of the heavens and the earth being, quote unquote, destroyed and made new before the new Jerusalem comes again to take up its permanent residence on this planet. Now, 
Just for a quick minute, I want to see something in the grand scheme of things, okay? In in kind of the bigger picture I think God has in mind. From the beginning of time, mankind's destiny was to live with God on a redeemed, sinless earth. You read that in Genesis chapter 1 and forward, right? That was God's plan. Not in some outer space heaven that is so removed from this mess called planet earth. That's not God's heart. That's not his plan. If you remember, as we've gone through this book, in chapter 4 of the Revelation, verse 11, the, the, uh, the presence around the throne of God are declaring the fact that God created all things, okay? And because of his will, because he wanted to, they existed and were created. It's talking about the heavens and the earth and everything God made in the whole universe. When we get to chapter number 11, verse 18, it talks about God's enemies. And it said his enemies are the ones who are destroying the earth. And that he would, God would, destroy the destroyers. So, if God destroyed the world and was going to make all new things instead of making all things new, you know what that would mean? If God destroyed the world, if he obliterated it, removed it from existence... Think about this. That would mean that God was partnering with the plan of his enemies and that they were right. And that God was kind of weak and and impotent in that he couldn't fix the problem. So he just had to throw it away and start all over again. No, no way. That is not God. Because to do that, God would be admitting failure. My plan didn't work. So I got to come up with a new plan. The original plan, the original purpose was unsalvageable. And so I guess I'm not as powerful as everybody thought I was. Is that the God you read about in the Bible? No. That's why he's not making all new things. That's why he's making all things new. Yes, sin, Satan, the whole shebang put a glitch in the original plan. Kind of a bit of a a detour off the main road. But God foresaw all that. God knew all that from the beginning. Jesus is not plan B. Probably should play that sound effect again. Jesus is not plan B. He has been plan A from the beginning of time. And even though we sinned and we gave up dominion and all that other stuff that we did, God has always had this plan in mind from the beginning to get this planet back to his original intention, his original plan, his original purpose for it and for us. Here's a mind blower, okay? I never saw this scripture before in this context that we're talking about. But as I've been studying for this, one of the commentators I read pointed this out. And I just thought, this is amazing. Jesus is talking in this scripture in Matthew 19 about the end and about his return. And he says, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration literally means in the regenesis. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking there to the apostles. But he talks about his second coming and this process of the earth being remade as a regenesis. You know what that means? When he comes again, he's taken it back to its original intention, its original plan, its original purpose before sin screwed this whole mess, this whole planet up. Is that amazing or what? The heart of God has always been to read Genesis this place. No plan B, only a plan A. The end of uh, verse number one talks about there no longer being any sea. 
I don't know if that's so much a physical, literal description as it is a, a, a metaphoric reminder. You know, in the Old Testament, the Red Sea was that thing that stood between the children of Israel and their entering into the promised land. I think it's, it's better understood as one of those kind of pictures. Hey, there's n- going to be nothing that stands in your way when you get to heaven. But, to entering into everything God has planned. It is the ultimate promised land and there's no Red Sea getting in the way of our going there and experiencing it 100% to its full intention and full plan. Wow. Okay, let's keep moving. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14? Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it wasn't so, I would have told you, but it is so. And I go to prepare a place for you so that when I come again, I'm going to receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. He's not saying there that he's coming to take us to this far away heaven. What's going to happen, folks, is it's not out there. Well, it is right now, but it's coming here. He has been in the process of preparing for who knows how long this place for us, these places for us. He's bringing it with him when he comes again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Folks, the the, the purpose of of this new heaven, new earth, this new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, is it's the ultimate dwelling place. The Garden of Eden started the whole process. They walked with God. They talked with God in the cool of the day. In the Old Testament, we saw the tabernacle, that dwelling place of God, but there was still some distance. When Jesus showed up, John 1.14 said that, that he was God, that remember the word came and it dwelt, it literally tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten. So Jesus was kind of this intermediary picture of God. We could never totally see him face to face, but Jesus was the perfect likeness and purpose, perfect representative. Now, when heaven comes, the tabernacle of God, it doesn't mean there's going to be a building there because we're told there's no temple. It's saying the dwelling place of God is with us and we with him. And that word for dwell in the Hebrew is the word skein. And it's from which we get the word Shekinah. It comes from the same root. And Shekinah means the fully, the fully divine presence and glory and dwelling of God. We're going to get God in full phase. And there'll be nothing separating us from him anymore. And then look at this. We have this picture of this magnificent, almighty, all-powerful, awesome, majestic, mighty, glorious God. And the first thing said about him in verse number three, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Max Lucado in a devotional that he wrote on this very scripture said this, let this sink in. You will see the face of God. You will look into the eyes of the one who has always seen. You will behold the mouth that commands history. And there is, is there anything more amazing than the moment you see his face? It's the moment he touches yours and he wipes away every tear from your eye. God will touch your tears, not flex his muscles or show off his power. Lesser kings would strut their stallions or give a victory speech, not God. He prefers to rub a thumb across your cheek as if to say, there, there, no more tears. 
Isn't that what a father does? Isn't that just amazing that the first thing said about this majestic, glorious, all-powerful one is he's going to take care of our tears. Beth Moore, in the study she did on the Revelation, said the Lord of evermore will also have a nevermore. Nevermore will there be tears, death, mourning, suffering, or pain. I had somebody come up to me last week after, after I was done preaching and said, but are we going to be conscious of our past? And I said, all the good stuff, yeah. But all the sin and all the regret and all the sorrow, no, that's, that's going to be wiped away. And they really were getting at, what, what about a loved one that's not going to be there? How are we going to deal with that? Again, personal opinion, all right? I think that, that maybe the wiping of the way of the tears is that initial, oh, they're not here. But folks, I think that the glory of heaven is going to be so amazing and so wonderful and so overwhelming and so all-consuming that we won't have time to think about that anymore. Not that we won't care. I mean, the heart of God cares for those people, but, but, but somehow we're, we're going to move on to, to a place that we will be so captivated by all of heaven that we won't have time to dwell there and to have grief over the fact that they're not there. Okay. He who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. In modern vernacular, take it to the bank. You can count on it. I think it's possible that in light of all the calamity and catastrophe and tribulation and wrath that John had just envisioned chapters before this, that Jesus says to John and says to us, by the way, John, it's true. Yeah, all that bad stuff was true, but John, this is just as true. You have my word. This is a done deal, John. This is me. I'm the alpha and the omega. I know the beginning from the end. And John, I made it. Okay? I made it and I've been watching over it and I am bringing it to its full and perfect and final completion. Take my word for it, John. And I love that last comment. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. Remember Jesus saying in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Literally, our translation is missing an article. It says those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness. And it's not talking about blessed are those who work hard to be good. It's talking about those who hunger and thirst for who is the righteousness. It's Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus because they'll be satisfied. And folks, in this moment is going to be the complete fulfillment of that cry of your heart, of my heart. No cost, paid for. Have all you want, drink all you want. What a sharp contrast, is it not, to what we read about Babylon where all those people were drinking from the gold cup of impurity and immorality and unrighteousness? Man, that's the kind of drink that you just want to go... Not this one. Mm -mm. Drink, drink full. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Hey, let's remember, we've been saying this all through the series. Life's hard. God's good. Don't quit. We win. We win. 
Be an overcomer because in being an overcomer, you will inherit all these things. And the most important thing that you'll inherit is sonship, being a daughter of the living God. Church, this picture of heaven is just one consummation after another, okay? One fully, finally, totally fulfilled promise, after one right after another. It just continues to go on and on and on. You'll be his son. You'll be his daughter. I thought this week about what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. Let's put that up there. Romans 8, 15 and 16. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That is a promise we got from God the minute we came to faith in Christ, the minute we gave our lives to Jesus. But folks, I have and you have been in process, have you not, of fully embracing that and fully believing that that's the truth about you? That's my story. I believe that, but I don't believe it. And I want to believe it more. And I do believe it more, but I don't fully believe it. Anybody else have that wrestle? Folks, there's a day coming when the wrestle will be over. Face to face, we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that destiny promised to us is now ours in full. Wow. Then a verse that seemingly is just interjected and it's like, what's that in there for? Except that it sheds some light on something we'll look at a bit later on. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, make no mistake, the scripture clearly teaches the final and complete outcome, the separation of the wicked from the righteous, okay? And again, righteous does not mean that you've never struggled with any of those things on that list or that you've never struggled with sin. I know people who read that and go, oh, I've been cowardly. I've not always believed. I've been immoral. I've lied. Oh, no. It's not talking about you because you're righteous. But I'm not perfect. No. But you're the righteousness of God in Christ. And when God looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Christ and sees you as righteous. Okay? Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous, folks, is talking about people in this list who continue to practice these things with no desire to wrestle, no struggle. They just give themselves to these things. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You see, to be righteous means you've been forgiven of those things. You might have been that way. But you're not anymore, and God doesn't see you that way anymore. You've been made new. You trust Christ now to be your righteousness and to save you and to give you victory over those things. Folks, the good news, the glory of the good news and the focus of heaven is not on who you were. It's on who you now are. Not on the fact that you may have wrestled or maybe you still wrestle with some of that stuff. I believe as long as we're in the fight and as long as we're continuing to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus, he gives us grace and he gives us strength and he forgives us every day.
It's the practice of those things, the Bible says, that I'm not fighting, I'm just giving into it because that's who I am or that's who I want to be. That's the person who's out. The focus is on who we now are. Okay, let's keep going. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, come here, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Um, I read that and I'm sure, I'm positive, I have very little understanding as to how to meld together the the perfect wisdom of God in terms of his perfect um, wrath and mercy combined. His perfect judgment and grace all fitting together. I don't understand all that. But I read this and I'm glad for this angel, aren't you? Think about this. This is the angel that pours out one of those seven bowls of wrath. I'm just so glad he gets to be in on some of the good stuff too. I am. I mean, what an awful assignment in some ways to be one of those plague pourer outers. It's cool that he gets to say, John, come here. I got to show you the bride. You got to see this. And now we enter into the last of the four visions of this book. He is in the spirit. And remember, the the revelation breaks down into these four visions. And every time that key phrase in the spirit is used, it's a new vision. And we're to the fourth one now. This vision of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Folks, I like to call it a panoramic close-up. I don't know how that works. That's why I call it that, because I don't know how this whole thing works. It's as if the angel saying, John, John, this is so vast. This is so spectacular. This is so enormous. You've got to come up here to be able to see it. You need a better vantage point. Come up to this high mountain if you really want to appreciate what this holy city is like. So he goes in the spirit to this great high mountain and the angel shows him the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11 says, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. I want to stop right there for a minute and make sure that you and I get something, something really, really, really important. The most striking characteristic of this city could get lost in all the details and all the description that we're about to read and look at. The most striking characteristic of this city is not its size, although its size is overwhelming. It's not its extravagance and its opulence and its beauty, although it's got all that going for it too. The most striking thing about this city is that it bears, it holds, it has The glory of God. This city is a perfect reflection of God's nature, his character, his essence, his likeness, whatever else you want to call it. That's again a song we sang earlier today. You're beautiful. When we get to heaven, the focus is not only going to be looking around going, wow, it's beautiful. Because the glory of God is the center of this thing. Your first response, my first response, isn't going to be, it's beautiful. It's going to be, oh God, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. And yeah, then we'll take in everything else. And it's beautiful too, believe me. You're going to see that in a minute. But this this holy city, it's not just from God. It contains the very glory of God himself. 
We could talk about that for days. We're not gonna. It has a great, next verse, it has a great high wall with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels. The names were written on those gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel. Three gates, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city has 12 foundation stones, and on those were written the names of the 12 apostles. This description parallels out of Ezekiel chapter 48. I'm not sure why 12 angels are here, because this city doesn't need a guard. And I don't know why the walls are so tall and thick because it doesn't need protected from anything. It doesn't need to keep anything in. Can you imagine being in heaven and they have to have big walls? You stay in here. Oh, that's okay, Lord. I'm not planning on going anywhere. I'm fine. And we're going to see in a minute. It doesn't have to keep anybody or anything out because that's already been dealt with also. Um, Some scholars see this particular word here is a kind of a flashback to the millennial kingdom, to that temporary thousand year reign of Christ when Israel was restored. Um, It's such a bigger picture than that. This is the completion of God's plan, folks. 12 gates with the names of the tribes, 12 foundation stones with the names of the apostle. It's, It's a perfect picture of the old and the new coming together. God didn't have one plan that Israel rejected and gave up on, and so he forgot about them and moved on to us. Uh Uh-uh. The covenant with them is everlasting. That means everlasting, forever. But we've been grafted in. We've been privileged and blessed to be a part of this. And this picture here is of the old and the new, Israel and the Gentiles coming together in this perfect, wonderful plan of God. I don't know what the name on the 12th gate is. It's not Judas, okay? Nobody's going through the Judas gate. Could be Matthias, the one that replaced him. Could be the Apostle Paul. To me, it's the who cares gate. I I don't care. All right. The city was laid out as a square. And its length is as great as the width. He measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. And its length and width and height are equal. I love the New American Standard Bible because I believe it's very, very accurate in its translation. This is one of the spots where I think it goofed a little bit. It's closer to 1,400 than 1,500 because in the Greek it says 12,000 stadia. And a stadia is about 600 yards. I'm not going to bore you, but if you do the math, it comes out just a little under 1,400 square miles. And it's, it's cubed. So let's use the smaller picture so that we don't exaggerate. Okay, don't put the next slide up yet. Um, but I want to, I want to show you something here. Um, Bob and Dennis, could you help me for just a minute? So Bob, if, if you'll hold this for us, come around the other way. And Dennis, if you'll grab that and we have holes in the top so you can, you can even use it like a bowling ball. So, um, just, I want you to think of this for just a minute. Okay. Um, and I want to thank Bill Johnson who built this for me, um, a scale model. I was really hoping you'd put the jewels and the costly stones on this, but you were afraid that I would pretend the rapture happened and I left town with all the goodies at kidding. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. So if, if you put this city on here, so Dennis, I need you to lay this on here. Start like at, at, uh, at Maine and go down to, it goes down to about the tip of Florida. Put the next slide up and it goes over and covers most of Texas and most of well, Kansas, Nebraska, and then on straight up. This thing is 1,960,000 square miles. 
Now, if you had a new floor, a new level every mile, would that be plenty of room between floors? I mean, for crying out loud in buildings, what are they, 10 feet, 12 feet, eight, something like that? You put a mile between these things, it is 2 billion 744 million cubic miles. We thought about talking about how many golf balls would it take to fill the New Jerusalem and decided the number would be so ridiculous it wouldn't mean anything to anybody. This is so huge. It is so vast. This is 50 times larger than all the square miles on planet Earth today. 50 times as big. Are your arms getting tired? Because in the new Jerusalem, your new body will be able to do this all day. You won't even, you won't even care. Um, You can set that down. Um, So if you like big cities, great. If you like wide open spaces, great. If you like both, great. Plenty of room for everybody in however you want this to look. Now, so it goes from like Montreal, Canada, down to Florida, over to Texas, Nebraska, and up that line. Now, I want you to suppose with me for just a minute. Don't put the next slide up quite yet. But um, suppose that, remember how we, when chapter, what was it, chapter 15 that talked about those great earthquakes that were going to happen? And chapter 15 said there would be an earthquake like no other earthquake ever before. And all the Teutonic plates are going to shift and the earth excuse me, earth's surface is going to shift. What if in that shift, next slide, it all moved up and to the right and the center of the new Jerusalem was Cleveland, Ohio. I'm just saying. Cleveland has a river. It caught on fire once, and it's probably more like the river of death than the river of life. Cleveland literally is called the forest city because it has so many trees. I could see the tree of life there. And I have one thing for the town family. Dallas Cowboy, America's team, the Cleveland Browns, heaven's team. Let a man dream, people. No, I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Okay, I'm just messing with you. Let's keep reading because we've got to finish this up. He measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. These walls are 216 feet thick. It has nothing to do with protection. What do we need protected from? God's there. It's got, I think, a picture of being sturdy and everlasting, Okay. Now, verses 18 through 21 are all the precious stones and it's gold-like glass. I'm not going to get into the deep meaning of each one of those stones and what they mean. I just think the point is, poor John, how does he describe something like this? It's gold-like glass. Oh, yeah, sure, that works. What is that? Poor John. How does he, he... He's trying to describe something he can't even imagine. But I do like the fact that each one of the 12 gates is made of a single pearl. Can you imagine the oyster it took? (laughs) How many of you like oysters? You could be eating on one of those babies for just about forever. That's a big oyster. Wow. 
I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a temple because the whole city is the dwelling place of God and His people. There's no place off limits. There, everything is an open area, whether it's God's on the golf course or He's in the library or He's in whatever place or area there is. God's everywhere. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Folks, there's going to be no power outages in heaven, no light bulbs burning out. All this time we've spent coming up with new light bulbs. What for? (laughs) Sorry, shouldn't have said that. The glory of God will illumine this place. The Lamb himself will be its lamp. I thought, I thought this week, so many references to this, but this one stuck out to me in John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He ain't only the light of the world. He's going to be the light of heaven. And here's a really cool section. Revelation 21, 24 through 26. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Again, similar language to Isaiah 60. The nations, the kings of the earth is not talking here about the wicked, unsaved pagan nations and kings. It's talking about the redeemed folks. And this, I think, is a picture of God's plan for every facet of society and for every society. All the nations, all the ethnic groups, everybody are going to bring him glory. And glory just means what God is like. And so in heaven, there are going to be expressions of every kind of custom and culture and color that's going to be government and education and the arts and sports and business, everything. Going back to God's original redeemed plan for them. They're going to bring all the glory, all the good intention to God himself. Remember, I've said to you, God's desire is not to bless the church in the city. His desire is to bless the city. That God has a plan for the arts and sports and business and education and everything. By this time, we're going to get back to it. And everybody's going to bring their glory to him. It's also a great picture of the open access all the redeemed will have to God all time forevermore. And the gates will never close. Napa's, I don't know how to tell this to you, but... This is going to be the happiest place on earth. It's not going to be Disneyland anymore. Wouldn't it be cool if Disneyland was there, though? In a new redeemed fashion? That'd be awesome. But this is going to be the happiest place on earth. Because even today, because we live in a fallen world, Disneyland has to close its gates every night and open them again in the morning. This new happiest place on earth won't need that. Woo! There's going to be no night there. When I taught this in Haiti, the church exploded. How many of you have been to Haiti and have heard the roosters? I don't know if there won't be any roosters, but they ain't going to make that god-awful noise they make. (laughs) I can't wait. Is he for real? Yeah, I, I really think that. And no, and nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination lying shall ever come into it. Only those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Folks, that is not a statement about possibility, okay? We've already seen in chapter 21, verse 8, that those who practice those things are going to be in the lake of fire. 
This is not a possibility statement. It's a finality statement. Only those who are saved, only those who are covered by the blood of the lamb are going to enter into this place. You don't have to worry about all those other unclean, bad, evil things. They're done. They've already had permanent assignment given. Jesus alone is your ticket in. And he has paid the price for you if you've given your life to him. And you're in. Last slide. We started this study with this verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Later on in that chapter, therefore, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things will, which will take place after these things. Church, I want to say this to you today. Listen to me. Just as surely as all of the nasty, evil, wicked, awful things that God himself said must take place before the end. Just as sure as all the chaos, trials, tribulations, and calamity are assuredly going to happen out of the mouth of Jesus himself. What we looked at today and what we will look at next week must and surely also will take place. And so today I want to say to you, let not your heart be troubled. Don't get focused on the mess going on. Jesus has prepared a place for us and he is bringing it back with him when he comes again. And to that I say... That's what I'm talking about. Let's pray. Would you stand, please, as I pray for you this morning? Lord, wow, how awesome, how wonderful, how glorious heaven is going to be. We can't wait. Lord, let what we've looked at today and what we'll look at next week be as sure in our hearts as all the mess and trouble we see today all around us. Let us know that everything in that book, especially the last two chapters, must also take place. And as we finish this study next week with the great reminder from your lips, your promise to us that you are coming again and that you are coming quickly. Prepare our hearts to say, as the church throughout the world and throughout history has said, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We bless you for this truth. We bless you for the hope it fills us with, for your goodness to us, for your abiding love and your watchful care over us every day of our lives. We thank you today that you are sovereign and that you are good. In Jesus' name.